The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. I will continue with my analysis, translation, commentary of the text of one of the most encyclopedic texts of the Hatha and Kundalini Yoga tradition which is precisely the tradition, the basic tradition, the fundamental tradition that we teach here in Agama. And I'm talking, of course, about the Geranda Samhita. Last week and during the last satsang, I moved from the second chapter, which was concerning with the asanas, to the third chapter, which was concerning with the so-called mudras. Mudra being a very versatile name, I went quickly, quickly in the chapter without saying much about it. Mudra is a name which is a very, very versatile name because it generally is translated best by the English word attitude. At the same time, this word is so stretchy that you can call even the asanas an attitude. When you do the bhujangasana, the cobra pose, you are having, you are assuming the attitude of a cobra or of a snake. So an asana can be an attitude and an attitude can superimpose on an asana. But mudras mean many, many things. There are mudras of kundalini yoga, which are complex psychosomatic techniques which involve body positions, breathing patterns contractions of the muscles or bandhas and other things and which are generally very advanced and sometimes also dangerous for performance. These are not the kind of techniques which we teach to the beginners. <coughs> Mudras means attitudes of the hands and the name is used extensively in the Indian dance where mudra is not only a position of the hands and arms, but generally an attitude of the body, like a pose. Mudras are an inner attitude, like with your, exactly as somebody with their inner attitude, by sitting up straight, for example, would express a certain inner state, while letting the shoulders drop and the spine bend, one suggests another energy, another attitude. And what, therefore, what I'm trying to convey here is that mudra is a very, very versatile name. And here, Geranda has proposed from the very beginning to teach 25 mudras. And as you are going to see, some of these mudras are pure mental things, visualization-like, like Shambhavi mudra which everybody in Agaba knows from the first level teachings, and some of them are the complex kundalini practices. That's why this chapter is very mixed. As we go through the chapters, you are going to see that it becomes less encyclopedic and tedious in a way. Sometimes it's tedious for me as a lecturer to just read to you 32 different asanas and their description. It's like an endless cortege of names and uh, descriptions of position of the body. 
which do not produce too much enthusiasm. With the mudras, already we talk about kundalini, we talk about higher accomplishments, and some of the things said here are very thrilling. And as we go to the higher techniques from the next levels, there, of course, the style becomes much more relaxed, and we are going uh, much deeper and less systematic like this. For the time being, we are in a transitional chapter, the chapter number three about the mudras, which is uh, slightly more magic, slightly more esoteric, slightly more paranormal and unusual than the text about asanas in the second chapter. And I managed to go through five different mudras already last time. The last of them is Jalandhara Banda, contracting the network of channels. It was there seen that the dimensions of such techniques, as described by Geranda, are much, much bigger than a simple physical exercise. And I'm moving now to the next of the list, which is another one with name problems, because in classical yoga and the way we teach it here in Agama, where we have tried to systematize a little bit, to use the main trend of the yoga tradition, in uh, uh, Agama yoga, uh, the name of this technique designates a much more simplified practice. Um, as we have seen, those of you who have been with me here in satsangs or who had listened to the previous satsangs on this text, sometimes uh, Geranda is obviously an adept of hybridization of techniques. He almost never keeps techniques pure. Some of the asanas and of the kriyas, yes. But even in various asanas, when he described a fundamental asana like Siddhasana, he actually described Siddhasana accompanied by Jalandharabandha and accompanied by frontal trataka. Therefore, <coughs> we are talking about um, technologies which are very much uh, hybridized. He doesn't like the simple technique. While really when we teach yoga, it's very important to teach a student first the ABC, like a Lego game where you first have to know the basic pieces of that Lego, and then you start assembling them. Then you start creating complex structures. So it's the same with this technique, which is no more and no less than Mulabandha. In classical yoga, Mulabandha represents a contract or contraction of the perineum, it's a very important technique in the context of all the others, but here, as you are going to see, uh, Geranda describes a totally different technique, and then he puts it in context with the next two, as you will see. The shlokas number 14 and 15 of chapter number 3 describe the so-called Mulabanda, which again, it's one of those stretchy name things. Press the left heel against the perineum, and contract the anus. So you are having a position of the body like in semi-siddhasana, and then contract the anus, which is in itself a mudra, Ashvini mudra, described in the yoga tradition and which most of you learn in the second day of the Agama courses. Carefully pull the knot of the navel towards the spine, the knot of the navel towards the spine. This involves in a colorful language, perform mudhyana bandha, 
So it's another thing. We are talking about putting the heel in the perineum, doing Ashvini Mudra, performing Udhyana Bandha. It's like, hey, hey, we are already doing quite a few uh, things simultaneously. So this is not just a technique. This is an ensemble of techniques. And of course, I hope it inspires you. If when you come to Agama's advanced, more advanced courses like in Kundalini program and so on, you see more and more of these things because uh, indeed part of yoga is from combining the yogic techniques, doing them simultaneously so as to obtain um, some effects. Nitric acid is just a powerful acid with no other properties. Glycerin is a simple chemical substance. And when they are mixed, they give nitroglycerin, which is a very, very potent explosive. That's exactly the principle. Some yoga techniques are simple when alone, and when put together, they may generate dynamite. They may generate nitroglycerin. And that's why people are advised always to ask to practice gradually as they are being taught. Geranda, being in love with this hybridization and combination of practices, shows you exactly this spirit, that in yoga there are the pure, simple Lego pieces, simple techniques, and then there is the mixture of some of them which gives disproportionately vast results. So he said, pull the Dudhyana Bandha and place the right heel on the root of the generative organ. That's the very definition of Siddhasana, one heel in the perineum and one heel at the root of the penis or about the area to the clitoris for women, the, generally the pubic area, we can say. This is called Mulabandha, destroyer of aging and decay. So after he described the complex practice, which is an asana, plus Ashvini Mudra, plus Udhyana Bandha, then he describes, he says, this Mulabandha, which is not the Mulabandha, which is generally admitted in the yoga tradition, destroyer of aging and decay. He already told us something about it. He said this Mula Bandha, but of course it's a practice of Udhyana Bandha while seated in um, Siddhasana and at the same time with um, some Ashvini Mudra practice. And this Mula Bandha, he claims it delays the, if the onset of old age, like it preserves youthfulness, and it uh, destroys even, uh, even towards death. Always the yogis have this towards decay, aging, or death. Here, death is not mentioned literally, and that's why it basically says this one will give you a lot of vitality, a lot of raw vitality. In the shlokas number 16 and 17, here he feels the need to give more details because the mudras are not so many and some of them are radical. Ultimately, when we analyze a thing like what he calls mulabandha here, we find a powerful asana with Ashvini mudra which stirs up the energy from muladhara and with Vudhyana bandha which produces kundalini to rise. We are speaking about a technique of kundalini yoga this mudra is a kundalini yoga technique and its first effect it will be that it will load the person with vitality. Also because of this he feels often like saying more, like praising them more. He wants to put more value 
on these techniques than what he puts on the asanas. That's why he says in the 16th and 17th shloka following, the person who desires to cross the ocean of existence, and by the ocean of existence, he uses the, o- the word ocean and then the word samsara. Um, very often the yoga tradition, although Buddhism had basically disappeared for many centuries in India, nevertheless the yogis about 2,000 years ago, even, even Patanjali and many others, they loved the word samsara and nirvana. They thought that Buddha described beautifully enlightenment and existence in Prakriti and in Maya, as the Vedantins will say. And that's why the names Nirvana and Samsara, which are originally pure Buddhist names, they don't exist in the ancient yoga treatises. They were grafted, they were borrowed happily by the yogis. Even late tantric traditions like Kashmiri Shaivism and others, they use, they say, this is the initiation which leads to Nirvana. Like they use the word Nirvana as an equivalent of Samadhi, enlightenment, and moksha, liberation, mukti. Uh, This is a, it has become part of the yogic lore. So here he says, the person who desires to cross the ocean of existence. That's the very nature of things, isn't it? Because the very nature of the problem of existence is that the human being often feels lost. Millions of years, being a human being for about two million years, in thousands of lifetimes, makes everybody fed up, over the top. There are difficulties, so many people commit suicide or do stupid things, and because life is simply getting too complicated, the pressure is too big, And of course, Buddha tells us, well, you could have simplified all this if you would cultivate detachment. Suffering is produced by ignorance. Everything is produced by desires. So give up your desires and you'll be happy. But of course, 99% of the people who are not ripe for nirvana yet now in this lifetime, they say, look, if you make want me to live without desires, It's like you are telling me to commit suicide. Like life without desires is like being a dead fish. You know, it's like I can't conceive. Life without desires is like suicide without actually suiciding yourself. It's a sort of a psychological suicide. And therefore, most people, even if they hear how many millions or hundreds of thousands of Buddhists would exist in this world, they heard the words of the Buddha. And everybody says, yeah, yeah. Like people who hear the word of Jesus, who says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is. But the people say, yeah, yeah, but then people say, you can't really be perfect, you know. Jesus is asking too much. Forgive 70 times 7. Yeah, first time when somebody steps on your toes, you actually want to clap them. You want to just take revenge. It's easy to read it when Jesus said it, but when actually things are happening to you, it's like, you know what? I'm just a human being. People use, I've heard it for all these years while I've been involved in spirituality, that people use this, hey, we are just human. Yeah, and that is a license to be stupid, ignorant, angry, full of desires, negative, demonic, selfish, you know. Then you shouldn't say, I'm human. Every time when you want to say, I'm just human, you should slap yourself over the face and punish yourself because that's a tricky way of your mind 
to just excuse mediocrity, to just excuse darkness, because we are just human. But on the other hand, there have been human beings that had had more expectations from themselves. There have been human beings who have lived at the level of excellence and perfection. And to be human, the Buddhists encourage it the other way, the Tibetan Buddhists. They say being born as a human being, free and completely endowed, like not being an invalid, incapacitated, <clears throat> not being somebody's slave or something like this, is a great gift. It is a great gift, like, no, value it. Put a big value on it. And that's why, um, again, um, these names, these terms from Buddhism have been borrowed happily in yoga, although most people uh, do not uh, apply them. Because the whole problem is that crossing the ocean of existence, as Geranda says, is the big problem. Like people are stuck in the middle of the ocean of existence. People don't know when they have been orangutans and gorillas and when they are going to become devas or bodhisattvas. We don't know how much before and how much after. We're like a sailor without a compass lost on an ocean. We don't know how much sea is behind us and how much sea is left before us, uh, ahead of us. And that's why the whole thing is that people find difficulty in the ocean of existence. There is fear, fear of the future, unlike the famous story with a bohemian-like spiritualist who when he was told that you have to live another 6,000 lifetimes, he became jubilant and he said, great, 6,000 more lives for me to have fun in this world. Like he was not worried. The other guy was told he had six lives to live and he said six more lives. Like even this life has been like such a pain in the neck and six more of this and I'm doing yoga and I'm doing austerities. Like he was scared. Like what's big time? What's the big problem with six more lifetimes? There's no problem, really. But you can make it a problem if your life is difficult and you are always paranoid and expecting the worst and always living with fear and things like that. Then, so for people, that's exactly the thing. We are on the ocean of samsara. And Buddha himself used the very non-tantric language and a very non-tantric imagery when he described this samsara like a boogeyman. You know, as long as you are in samsara, maybe not in this life, maybe in the next life, when you will be less warned, when you didn't meet with Swami Vivekananda and you didn't read autobiography of a yogi or something. Then in that next life, your brother, sister dies, you get sexually abused, you are, your children die on you with plague or something. And then you feel like killing yourself. Life has fallen apart. Everything crumbles in, around you and life becomes a nightmare. Life becomes a misery. You see people, I'm sure everybody has in their family, in their acquaintances, in their friends, people who lived until now at least, until this point, some nightmarish life, an ugly life, a bad life, which you wouldn't like. If that life would be offered to you to trade it for yours, you'd say, no, thank you. And it's like, I... I wouldn't take that life for anything in the world. That, that life is misery 
and pain and agony and ugly and dirty and ignorant and painful and selfish and everything. You know, it's like there's no noble thing in that. Many people live in that kind of life and therefore people are lost in the ocean of samsara and Buddha used this dirty trick that he called the attention on that because Buddha could have seen a man and a woman making love in a tantric way and enjoying orgasm for one hour. And then he would have said, what's this? And people would have told him that's an ecstasy which the human body makes possible in case you are curious. But Buddha saw a sick man, an old man, and a dead man. Like take the biggest shadows of the human existence and highlight them, bring them forth. And then you can say, see, samsara, which is characterized by old age, disease, and death, is a nightmare. Be afraid of it. Because that's what's awaiting for you. Old age, disease, death, not only of yours, of everybody around you. Everybody you love and like is going to get old and distorted by old age, decayed, and sick, and will die, and all that. And therefore... It's a way of creating an artificial boogeyman. Tantra doesn't want to see this as a boogeyman, but it is. And that's why the whole thing was that one has to cross the ocean of existence. Your soul has been created by the creative force of the universe. Your soul is not really created because it's omnipresent, eternal. It can't be created and destroyed. The very concept of soul or spirit makes it eternal. But we can say your spirit has been launched in the manifestation. It has been in samsara for a while. And one day, hopefully, this spirit is going to become a bodhisattva and a Buddha and reach moksha and return to its original divine condition as you become one with a cosmic consciousness. In between the launching and the arrival, it's like you are on one shore of a river or of an ocean, and then that's the other shore. This is where you come from, and that's the target. Theoretically, everybody will reach that shore, but not without a lot of pain and delay. And that's why the yogis have always said, that's the opinion of spiritual people, let's cross the ocean of existence quickly, quickly. Like people who just drift, they, you stay in a boat or on a raft, and you say, sooner or later, I'll get to the other shore. Yeah, but it's later, not sooner. And that later means lots of shit will happen until that time. People will say, yeah, but also lots of joys and orgasms. Yes, that's how life is. Yin and yang, valleys and hills. You'll get one, but you'll not be able to avoid the other. And therefore, it's a package deal. You are going to get lots of yin and lots of yang, lots of hills and lots of valleys, and go on and on. And some people are fed up with it, and they say, I don't want hills and valleys. I just want to cross the damn river. It's not damned, but it's like unpleasant, at least subjectively. I want to cross this river and I want to reach the other shore because if inevitably I'm going there, then why prolong the agony? Why should I wait for one million years to reach bodhisattvic stages? Why not reach them in three years doing eight hours of yoga per day? You know, it's like, let's cut the crap, let's cut the agony short and let's see what's coming on the other shore. Since I already know the end of this novel, it's kind of become useless to read the novel. No, we can just skip to the final chapter because we kind of know how it ends and where it ends. And that's why this syntagm is very beautiful because here Geranda takes a Buddhist imagery 
He expresses it in a Hindu environment, but this expresses the problem of life. Because here, Giranda speaks to the yogis. And he says, if you don't want to cross the ocean of samsara, stop reading my book. Because my book is for those who wish to cross quickly the ocean of samsara. Everybody crosses it, but everybody drifts passively. And they will cross it in a hell of a long time. If you want to cross the ocean of samsara now, in this lifetime, ASAP, then you do this and that. This is the spirit of yoga expressed by Geranda. In a certain way, it shows you that yoga is not about stretching your hamstring. Yoga is about crossing the ocean of samsara. It's an existential problem that the human being is pained by existence. It's not always a harmonious attitude. In Tantra, we try to show you the beautiful part that you can navigate in sunny seas and on uh, mild oceans, and navigation can be leisure and pleasure. It can be a hobby. But sometimes there have been people who tasted hurricanes and maelstroms, and then navigation has become death and mayhem. And that's why um, here, Geranda follows the Buddhist view, and he says the person who desires to cross the ocean of existence, which means to cross it faster. Yeah? And you say, it's not me. Okay, then you are listening to me out of mere intellectual curiosity, because what I'm reading here is not really concerning you. It's concerning you if you want to cross the ocean of existence. That's what yoga is made for. That's what Buddha taught. That's what Krishna taught. That's what Jesus taught. Now, in this lifetime, reach salvation, reach cessation of the endless process of reincarnation, reach emancipation, reach freedom, reach nirvana. The person who desires to cross the ocean of existence or samsara, let him go to a retired pay place and practice in secrecy this mudra. Again he comes, it's a, but if only Garanda would have said, you would have said this guy is a hysteric and he has a mania. Some people are mythomanic, some people are kleptomanic, some people are erotomanic, and Geranda is secretomanic. You know, he is a yogi who always says you should do this in secret. Maybe he is a Virgo or a Scorpio or some other astrological sign that really likes to be very private and secret, and all this is just the projection of his neuroses. But the funny thing is that this kind of attitude exists in all these kinds of yoga. In all the tantric yogas, <clears throat> where this kind of concrete techniques are given explicitly, people insist again and again, this is not for everybody. You shouldn't show it. When you practice it, you should do it alone. Only your peers and your guru can know about this, or only your guru sometimes, and so on. Like, keep things secret because it somehow enhances the practice. There are so many explanations for this, and I showed it that even when he talked about Kriyas in the first chapter, he kept on saying, this Kriya is very secret and it should not be talked to everybody. And it sounds ridiculous. It sounds sometimes selfish, like I know about Shankaprakshalana that can maybe heal some intestinal cancer, then why not put it on the first page of Washington Post, you know? Like, why not blog it all over the internet? Like, give it to the whole world since it's so great. It would be like a sort of a selfishness not to give it. 
And yet Geranda and other great yogis like him say, no, if you'll post it on the first page of Washington Post, it will become diluted. It will sound ridiculous. It will sound like banal. And because of this banality, it will be discharged of meaning. Like one man got crucified and he changed history. And at the time of Spartacus, thousands of gladiators got crucified and they didn't change pretty much anything. No, like it's a matter of quantity versus quality. Sometimes much more is not better. And that's why here you are having a thing that sometimes the virtue, the power is constant. And when you grab it and you keep it for a limited number of people, it becomes strong. Some psychologists say that, well, we don't know if there is a sort of invisible charge of energy because scientifically we can't dis demonstrate about the astral energies, mental energies in the collective subconscious mind. Only the yogis and other similar spiritual practitioners believe in these things and they use them, not as a religious belief, but they have a concept of this. And then many psychologists say, well, if you keep the secret, this empowers you. It triggers some psychological phenomena where you feel that you are chosen, you feel that you are privileged, you feel that this thing surely is going to work because not everybody knows about it. You feel that uh, you have been blessed, that your prayers have been answered to, and a few other similar things. And those things are actually empowering you. So some psychologists say, well, the, it's psychologically valid, so you should keep the secrecy, but it's because it makes you feel better. It enhances your own practice because it makes you feel that you are doing something special which average people can't know, where they don't have access to. And this sort of gives value, puts value in your own practice. Either way, there are people who oppose, for example, that in a, some medical process or something, people should do it with great faith or something as being a placebo type of thing. But the same researchers demonstrate that placebo has a healing effect of 40%. Like, why would I want to diminish my healing effects with 40% by doing things without faith without belief when faith and belief would give me an additional 40% 40% is not a little 40% is huge so of course I have to do things with placebo the more placebo the better the more belief and faith in what I do the better chances I stand scientifically if in I'm a double blind laboratory experiment I don't want any placebo because it, but that's not how things are in daily life. In daily life, you are not a rat in a laboratory in a double-blind experiment. In life, you have a mind and a soul and hope and thoughts and things. And the yogis describe a living yoga, not a laboratory type of yoga. That's why he says, the person who wishes to cross the ocean of existence, take this Mula Bandha, which is not a Mula Bandha, it's Ashvini Mudra, Udhyana Bandha, Siddhasana, and go into a retired place and practice in secrecy this Muda. In a retired place, like you are not going to be disturbed, 
and practice it in secrecy. Like we always have this issue. And again, it's not uh, that I'm saying it in a negative way. Some people do a month of yoga. They want to go home in their city and share it with all their friends and all their family. It's fine. It's like Facebooking yoga. You know, it's a source. It's a social networking. It's a socializing of yoga. The, ori- the yogis, the original yogis from India and Tibet, they were not very social. They were not very svadhisthanistic. They were secretive people who wanted dynamite. And they wanted dynamite for 10 people rather than glycerin for a million people. They wanted the concentrated thing, the explosive thing, for those who can reach those levels of practice and of initiation. This is a spirit of yoga. And again, I'm not saying you should become antisocial and stop sharing. But everybody, ask the advanced pupils who have been in yoga for four years, five, six more years, and you are going to see that they have given up. There are not many of our advanced yogis who every time when they go back to their country, they once more try to blog it out and socialize and involve their family. They did it once. They did it twice. They did it three times. They bit the dust. They saw it doesn't work and it doesn't serve any purpose, really. And eventually they have learned their lesson and they have said, probably Geranda was right. Like, save yourself first. Then if you become like Jesus Christ, maybe you can save other people in your wake. But it never works simultaneously. You can't, when you are in the mud up till here, you cannot draw out of the mud another person. First, you have to get yourself out of the mud on a stable foothold, and then maybe you can pull somebody else out of the mud. And that's why this secrecy thing is powerful in yoga. The yogis were not not willing to go beyond a certain level with their revelations, like to make it public and social at any time, all the time. This desacralization of yoga, which we are witnessing today, that yoga is kind of, oh, let's put it all out on the internet. Let's have Google scan it all and put it out there. It's good for a scholarly and informational purpose, but when it comes to practice, people still come to a yoga school. There, there are some rules of secrecy and karma. People practice, go deeper, learn from their teachers. Like Even if those, all those books are published out there, when you come to the real-life practice of yoga, It's not like in the books. It's like in reality. You have to follow a certain pattern. And he says in 17, in the second of these two shlokas, by its practice, by the practice of this so-called mulabandha, which is a beautiful exercise of kundalini yoga, actually, a composite exercise, the wind, and he uses a very funny word here, which is marut. We encountered it other times. The maruts are a sort of gods of the air. They produce storms and lightnings and so on. By its practice, the wind, and when you use the wind and you say like the gods, the, the, the spirits of the air, by the practice of this mudra, the spirits of the air are controlled. It means the air and the prana and all the mystical powers involved in prana and pranayama by all this, the maruts, the, the, the prana, is controlled 
Undoubtedly, he uses a strong word like no doubt. Listen to me, I promise. No, it's like with no doubt when you do this exercise, the prana gets under control. Let one, and he concludes by saying, let one silently practice this. He uses the very word mauna, like practice this while doing mauna, which is double entendre because it means maybe you should practice a couple of weeks of mauna while you do this. It, in, it stops you from losing too much energy in your Vishuddha chakra and it will help the energy go higher and higher. It also can mean a remembrance of what he said earlier, like keep your mouth shut. You practice this in silence, which also means don't, don't babble too much about it. Practice it in silence and without laziness and with care. So without laziness, it's obvious, no, like, Sometimes one of the main obstacles in yoga is laziness. People who lose their enthusiasm, they relapse on laziness. It's true that there are people who are not lazy. Not all of you, not all the people who come to yoga are lazy. There are people who they have so much energy and they are so restless. They say, if I don't do yoga, then I want to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning and do some jogging. If I don't, do, if I don't have a class today in Agama and I don't practice... I'm going to some course of Ashtanga or of dynamic or something because I really need to hop and sweat and I've got itches in my ass and I really, really, really need to stretch and move and jump and hop and do whatever. So not everybody is lazy. The people who have this energy, they will do something even out of boredom, even out of restlessness. They will say, oh, let's do some mulabanda or something. But it is one of the plague which filters out a percentage of the aspirants in yoga that some discover that their first demon, their first obstacle is sometimes laziness. Like you've got gold in, put in front of you and you don't even bend over to pick it up and to value it. You don't use it. Yoga is sheer gold for some people. I've known people who knew the cure to their cancer and they were too lazy to do it. You are wondering, but then it means that somehow, somewhere, they were actually suicidal. They didn't really want to live, because any intelligent person who would want to live and has a will for life would have sweated a little bit, would have done some effort for it. And thus, uh, this is mentioned here, because it's one of the big obstacles. So he, he promised a lot. He said, this technique will help you cross the ocean of samsara. But you have to go in a quiet place. You have to practice it in secrecy. You have to be rather silent, either metaphorically speaking or literally speaking, and practice it without laziness and with care. With care is a beautiful word which they use sometimes because I, for example, as a teacher, have seen sometimes pupils who, as soon as you teach them something, they go extreme. There exists a percentage, not many. Like I remember I taught a pranayama, I taught one of the big mudras from Kundalini to some of my pupils at the time when I was living and teaching in Denmark. And then I had a class in which I knew that one of my pupils was a crazy, manic, compulsive Scorpio man. And I told to the class, this technique, all of you do it madly with the exception of hands who should do it mildly. Because your referential point is different. For what is mild for you 
it will be hard for the rest of the class. The rest of the class push it more than usually. Hans, please keep it down less than usually. And then you will be on an equal level of practice. So that's why the yogis sometimes they say, do this, hold your breath or do your Jalandharabandha with care. Which means not in a hey-ho way. It, this is not voluntary work. It's not patriotic instinct. It's not like, hey, let's go. You know, it's like, no. It's not done violently. It's not done compulsively. It's not, you have to do it with care. You do it with care because if there is a reaction in the body, you have to stop immediately. You have to listen to your body. So you do things, but you do them with care. With care means it's a considerate practice. You consider, you keep awareness. You don't do it like, you know, hey, I can bungee jump three times per day. I'm a, I can do it. Yeah, right. And if I teach you Jalandharabandha or something, you're going to break your neck because you are hey-ho and you want to demonstrate something. You know, it doesn't work that way. So uh, this is a good expression which you should remember also. And he said a few great things about this Mulabandha, which is again not the classical Mulabandha. And without further ado, in the 18 and 19, he moves to the Mahabandha. <clears throat> Mahabandha is part of, the tr of a big triad of Kundalini Mudras. And he describes it in a bit of a convoluted way. 18 and 19 start by saying, press the left heel against the anus. He doesn't say perineum, he says anus, which makes many people uh, teach, like there are dif different inclinations of the pelvic area when you do this. And then press in its turn, press it in its turn with the right foot. So like the right foot on top of the left and starting from the anus. Contract the muscles of the anus and perineum. The word which he uses for perineum is actually yoni. Yonishtana is a name which is not used only for the female vagina. It's like the man would have a place where the yoni would be, and that is the perineum itself. So press the move, the anus and the perineum, which means contract those muscles. In terms of classical yoga, hatha yoga that we teach here, that's Ashvini Mudra and Mulabandha. And hold the breath by Jalandhara. Again, pretty composite. You've got a funny position of the legs, a sort of a Siddhasana, a bit more extreme apparently, you are doing Ashvini Mudra, you are doing Mula Bandha, you are doing Jalandhara Bandha, pressing the chin against the chest, which is more than just pressing the chin against the chest. This is called Mahabandha. So it's a whole story put there. It's again a very composite technique. Uh, some of these, I did not bother to stop and describe in detail every Kriya because we teach them anyway. I did not bother to sit and describe in detail every asana or bring you a PowerPoint presentation with photos of asanas, like some printed editions of Geranda Samhita do, so you can have a visual image of what he's talking about, since most of these asanas we teach them anyway. The same with the mudras. It's not my intention to actually teach you all the details of the mudras. With the mudras, I'm actually... 10 times more cautious than I would be for explaining a Kriya or an Asana for the very simple reason that these kind of mudras, especially like one which he describes here and a few others, 
These are Kundalini mudras, and Kundalini mudras for people who still drink alcohol, especially in vast amounts, to inebriation points, for people who smoke cigarettes or marijuana, for people who use drugs, for people who are psychologically and emotionally imbalanced, and for many other such people, such techniques can be doomsday. They can be a punishment instead of a reward. So, of course, because we go through Geranda Samhita, we go through this A to Z uh, listing of yoga and accounting of yoga, which is good for you because it charges you up with a superior understanding of the tradition of yoga. But uh, don't worry if sometimes the techniques are not explained in detail. It's not the purpose of Geranda to explain them in detail in his compendium. And it is not my purpose to teach them today, which would make obsolete and useless our courses as well. The actual teaching of the techniques is in the courses. It's just interesting for you what exists, what the great yogi as Geranda has selected, and the spirit of yoga which shines through here and there, as we saw in this previous shloka with the secrecy and all that. And he concludes the description of Mahabandha, which is a fundamental kundalini practice, in the shloka number 20, by saying Mahabandha is a great bandha that destroys aging. He uses a word which can be translated as decay, aging. Decay of your body which comes with age. So the process of aging and decay. And it says it's a great bandha that destroys aging and death. So it's bigger. Now he pluses. Now he uh, supplements by mentioning death. As you know, this story with death was mentioned a couple of times. And of course, uh, you can interpret it in the more moderate, rational way, in which you'd say the correct word is not destroy. doesn't destroy death. It uh, delays death. And that would be a remarkable thing. Like people sometimes perform surgery and all the mutilating medical things which will give them another three years of life to live. And if we could demonstrate in any medical or experimental way that somebody does Mahabandha one hour every day and because of this they live 10 years more, their normal lifespan was to be 75 and they actually lived to 85, well, that's 10 years of life. It's not a joke. Even extending your lifespan with one year for some people would be a miracle and a worthwhile cause. So that's why uh, take it in the rational way when you say it destroys aging and death, it means it delays them. But then, of course, you know that there are the urban legends in yoga forever, which speak about uh, Babaji-like gurus who lived for three, 2,000, 3,000 whatever years and who are going to live for another gazillion of years because basically they have reached a diamond body, a rainbow body, and some form of physical immortality. So even physical immortality is not completely left out of the picture by the yogis. Somebody will say, come on, this is too much. Maybe the yogis consider that this is a placebo which can add 5% to your life. Is it worth it believing in the fact that there exists something which can completely destroy death and the final result of it is that you'll live five years more. Some people would say, you want to give me five years extra to my life? 
hooray, you know, I can believe in the little green man on Mars for that, you know. Like I'm ready to believe in any shit if it makes me live five more years. That's why you always have to be, to see in this language of the yogis, a skillful use of hope, of self-suggestion, of positive thinking, which even if you don't take it for literal, nevertheless, it's a great spirit. These people lived with hope. They definitely, they were not hopeless losers. They were not living in hopelessness. They always had in front of them that, you know, I did not manage to destroy my old age and death. That's because I'm lazy. Because if I wouldn't have been lazy, there is a technique in Garanda Samhita that destroys old age and death, you know. And it's all according to my choice. It still keeps me thinking about some great noble ideals if I manage to do it the right way. So, take it with a pinch of salt. Think of it as whatever your minds allow you to think of it. The ancient yogis, they were not ashamed to have huge beliefs. They didn't consider that that makes you stupid or silly or brain dead just because you want to think big, just because you want to think great things. And he moves to the next, the sister of Mahabanda, Mahaveda, which those of you who studied our Kundalini Yoga program, you know. And he describes something which is not the Mahaveda described by most gurus and traditions again. Geranda has a peculiar Mulabanda and he has a peculiar Mahaveda as well. He starts with a sentence which will send the feminists shrieking with indignation because it says, as the beauty, youthfulness, and charm of a woman are in vain without men, so are Mulabanda and Mahabanda without Mahaveda. Maybe in the 21st century America, he would have chosen a more politically correct comparison, leaving all the gender issues out of the picture. But Geranda is a simple guy who speaks his mind. Geranda thinks that women make themselves beautiful, youthful, and charming to be adored by men. And if, a, if you put a woman alone on an island like Robinson Crusoe, it matters in no way if she is beautiful or charming or anything, because there is nobody to enjoy that. Of course, egocentric, some egocentric person will say, oh, I'm beautiful for myself. What do you care? I'm not because it makes me feel like I'm the slave of circumstances. Geranda is a bit uh, pushy here, and he says, in, indirectly, he doesn't want to stop on this. He just wants to make an analogy. It's exactly like a British person will say, as my tea is completely useful, useless without some milk in it, so is uh, Mahaveda without Mahabanda or something. This guy didn't know about tea with milk in his century, and he gave a comparison which sounded pertinent to him. To him it sounded pertinent that most women and the society is made in such a way that the female charm, beauty, and youthfulness is a Svadhisthanistic thing which is used for being attractive and charming, especially in the eyes of the opposite gender. Therefore, don't get irked by it. It's a countryside Indian simile from the early 18th century. 
And if it upsets you, just throw tomatoes at Geranda, throw rotten tomatoes at Geranda, because he's the author of this. So he just wants to say, as something, this is useless without this, like a screw without a screwdriver to actually plunge it, to, to use it. So are Mulabanda and Mahabanda without Mahaveda. This statement exists concerning these three techniques, sometimes described slightly different and sometimes described with different names. It exists in yoga. Everybody in Kundalini program here knows that Mahamudra, Mahabanda, Mahaveda are a triad and they have to be practiced, all three of them, because they give a chain reaction and they need to be done in a certain way. So he simply says this last third one, Mahaveda, Pay attention to it because it kind of goes with the previous two and it makes them yield fruits. So he simply wants to say these techniques are a package deal. And then he describes it. He says, assume first the Mahabanda posture. That's the previous one with the Siddhasana and all that. And perform the Uddana Kumbhaka. The commentators and everybody agrees that actually he means Uddhyana Banda. Kumbhaka means retention of the breath. And he uses the word Uddhana, but not like Uddhana Vayu with a D. He uses it Uddhana with double D, which is just one letter away from Uddhyana. Nobody suspects that it's a script, it's a typo, that it's a scribe copying error. Everybody assumes it that it's a colorful way of using the Sanskrit language because Uddana would mean something which pushes things up. So he means and use the retention which pushes energy up. But everybody in yoga knows that the retention of the breath which pushes the energy up is a void retention in which you suck the belly in and that is none other than Uddhyana Bandha. And thus you can see this is an, also an example for you of how these yoga texts are difficult to translate without a teacher, because then you would be like, oh, Udana Kumbhaka, I've never met this name, what is Udana Kumbhaka? The guys don't speak like German engineers using always the same terminology or using the Latin name of a plant or, you know, like really going scientific. They use a fuzzy language and most authors, most scholars after all these and decades of analysis of some yoga texts, they say it's done on purpose. Like on purpose, they keep it fuzzy. So if you get to steal the, the manuscript of Geranda from him, you'll look through it, but you'll not really be able to use it without the presence of Geranda himself. <clears throat> so assume the Mahabanda posture and perform the Udana Kumbhaka. So this is, again, composite, asana, Ashvini Mudra, Mulabanda, maybe some Jalandhara, although we don't know, that is not mentioned clearly, and Udhyana Banda. This is Mahaveda, giver of success to the yogis. So it says giver of success. It doesn't explain what kind of success it is, because some people would say this yogi wants luxury. So Mahaveda will give him success in the, what he wishes, or does success refer only to spiritual places? This is a tantric tradition, and therefore the meanings are very open.
and he concludes in the shlokas 23 and 24. The yogin who practices daily, Mahaveda, Mahabandha and Mulabandha, is the best of yogins. He simply says, praises this practice very much, this triple Kundalini Yoga practice. For him, he, now he pushes the envelope of course, for him there is no fear of death and old age does not afflict him. Does he say there is no fear of death because death won't happen? Or he simply says there is no fear of death. He's going to die like you and I, but without having any fear of death because so much energy, so much kundalini is going to give him huge accomplishments and a huge uh, state of consciousness coming from that. He doesn't explain. It's twilight language again. It's double entendre language. And he says to conclude, this Veda must be kept secret by the yoga adepts. Again, secrecy. He says this Mahaveda practice should be kept secret. And with 25, he reaches to the last, perhaps this will be the last which I'll manage to reach today. Let's see how it goes. He reaches to one of the most extreme practices of the yogis, which is practiced with great difficulty and after a long training. Even here in Agama, not everybody does it. It is some people who do the Kundalini, they wish to go there. And of course, I mean the very extreme Kechari Mudra, which is a practice of great relevance, like most of the esoteric texts of yoga who go to this level, they would mention it. A great yogi like Swami Shivananda, he mentions something like Lastana Yoga or something. He has a name for it or Alambhana Yoga or something. And actually he says this Alambhana Yoga, which is like a whole branch of yoga, consists solely in the practice of Kechari Mudra. Like Kechari Mudra in itself is a branch of yoga. Like you, Exactly like some people live out of Kirtans and Bhajans and Bhakti and some people live with Karma Yoga or with Jnana Yoga. Shivananda says there would be people who will do just one practice all day long. That's Kechari Mudra. This Kechari Mudra is uh, done in several ways. And Geranda gives one of the versions. In this version of Geranda Samhita, you also hear some details said very clearly. 25. Cut gradually the frenulum under the tongue and move the tongue regularly, rubbing it with milk and butter and stretching it with an iron pincer. Or a, the word is an instrument, an iron instrument, like one of these pincers used for various medical maneuvers. This itself is a technique which scares, like this is the first technique of yoga which most of you have heard of, where you are supposed to cut a part of your body. It, there will result blood, there will result a little bit of pain, and there will result a change of the morphology and anatomy of the body, which is irreversible. Like if you are cutting the frenulum under the tongue, you'll not be able to stitch it back 99.9%. And therefore, it's a sort of a one-way ticket, and therefore, you can say, well, will it leave uh, some negative things, or where is, is there any danger to it? Basically, the yogis have observed that some animals can flip their tongue. 
like the tongue of the human being, can at the maximum be curled up. You can push the tip of the tongue on the vault of the palace, and that's as much as you can push it up and back. But if you try to push it more, it won't, because there is a frenulum, there is a little ligament, it's a skin, a fold of skin and mucous membrane under the tongue, which keeps it anchored. That frenum, frenulum, to use a medical, the medical, uh, medical English word for it, it's a frenum, but it's a small frenum. Frenum is in Latin. That's why in English they coined the word frenulum, which is a rare word. Only doctors and anatomists would use it. This frenulum of the tongue is not equal. For example, there are people who accidentally can swallow their own tongue. But then that means that their frenulum is unusually loose or long or something, or it got broken suddenly, because otherwise how would you swallow your own tongue? Any one of you can try now, even with your fingers, to push your tongue as far back as it goes. You'll never swallow it. 99% of the people will never swallow it because there, there is a frenulum which prevents that. We can therefore say that maybe this frenulum is a sort of a protection by Mother Nature and it's welcome there for 99.9% population percent of the population who don't want to have any accidental thing. But the yogis are not part of that 99.9% of the population. They are part of the 0.1% who are ready to do crazy things and to try crazy things and to go places. And the yogis have discovered even this. They studied nature and they have seen that some animals swallow back their tongue. And when they swallow back their tongue, some very weird physiological phenomena happen. For example, in the case of frogs, this results in hibernation, in low metabolic rate, which basically puts the person in a sort of suspended animation in a sort of clinical death almost or something close to it and that's why the yogis decided to give it a try it is not out of the question that one percent of the population or one person in a thousand actually do have this frenulum a bit more loose and those people in the beginning didn't even need to cut anything they simply naturally seen that unlike uh, Walter, who has a short frenulum and a short little tongue, I have a hell of a long tongue and the frenulum is also very loose. And then for me, it becomes possible to do something which for Walter is not possible. It becomes possible for me to push my tongue behind my uvula, behind the soft palate, and kind of semi-swallow it. And then they played with it. And if some of them saw that some interesting yogic results would come from this, they would say, well, regretfully, you guys can't swallow your tongues, but maybe in time, with experience, we can develop some training to do that. And that training would consist of two things. Make your tongue longer. And that's the same principle. It was explained in the... Kriyas, in the first chapter on Kriyas, there was a Kriya which was doing exactly this, and it sounded really bizarre. And the same principle, by the way, is what we teach in the Tantra 2 workshops, when we teach that it is possible for men to stretch their lingam, to stretch their penis, 
And if you do that for two years stubbornly, it's actually going to get longer and bigger. Because if you stretch a tissue, you force it to develop, especially if you do it the right way with the right protocol in the right sequence. And therefore, here is the same thing. There is nothing surprising. Geranda says, as many yogis say, if every day you pull your tongue, it's going to get bigger. That is valid for a lot of other things. So it says, and so the first thing is rub the tongue by milking it. And you can even use an instrument. Some yogis are not as tough as Geranda. And they say you should use an iron instrument. Because iron instruments in the 17th century, they probably looked like the torture instruments of the Spanish Inquisition. They were not stainless steel, soft, rounded, curved like the medical instruments of today. They were probably way more rough. And that's why uh, some yogis would not trust this. They, they will not trust it will go the right place. And they will simply say, well, which other way you've got to stretch your tongue? Because if you try to just grab it and pull it, the tongue is wet and slippery. And it has a conical shape. So the only way to really catch your tongue will be to catch it with a handkerchief. If you get it dry and then you catch it with a piece of cloth, then you can have some grip on it and you can slightly pull it. So there will be yogis who would be way more friendly and say, forget about the iron instruments. Pull it. Just milk it. Grab it and milk it every day. Stretch your tongue 5, 10, 15 minutes. Right? If you are a yogi and you live in the Himalayan jungle, you are looking at the tips of the mountains and stretching your tongue maybe 4 hours per day. Because you don't have a job, you don't have a family, you don't have worries and stress, and you are just sitting and tingling your tongue all day long because you've got all the time in the world to play with yourself. So, and says rubbing it with milk and butter, the same advice we give about the butter to people who do penis extension exercises in Tantra, because the milk and butter, among others, they contain growth hormone from the cow for her little calf. And therefore, milk and butter applied on the skin, they give you growth hormone. And the growth hormone will encourage the growth of the tissues, even by cutaneous absorption, even by skin absorption. Many people don't understand why milk and butter. That's the tradition, and there might be some other elements. The fat from the butter and from the milk might contain some proteins or some fats which encourage the tissular development we don't know it has not been researched scientifically scientific research doesn't have time to deal with weird things like that and because of this not much is known really why or how it is it's just what they found out in the tradition you stretch your tongue by a handkerchief or a metallic instrument pulling it and pulling it the more the better like if you pull it four hours per day you're going to get twice as much effect as if you pull it two hours per day. And if you pull it two hours per day, you are going to get twice as much effect and lengthening as compared if you are stretching it one hour per day. So it's all a matter of practice. If you are a fanatic and practice fanatically, you are going to get extreme results in no time. <clears throat> so that's one thing. And the other is the tongue doesn't need to be long because if your frenum, frenulum is abnormally advanced, forward then still you would need to make your long exceed your tongue exceedingly long to get the same result and you might uh, use a, a trick by which you simply get rid of that frenulum the yogis have a 
there are at least 10 texts which speak about this Kechari Mudra, and every one of them is giving their own version of how you deal with it. Everybody, when you think of taking a razor blade or a razor and cutting yourself a little bit under the tongue, you are shuddering at the mere thought of it because you are thinking it's going to be a lot of blood, it's going to hurt, and it's like, you know, I, I, don't, I do it in a mirror and a little shaking, a little tremor in my fingers, and I kind of cut off my tongue or God knows what's going to happen. So, of course, people are scared. This is a, the type of extreme practice. The yogis in some text, you say that every day you cut like a half of a millimeter. Like you cut half of a millimeter, just pinch it gently with a blade, and that will not make a big difference. There will be some blood and so on. Then you rub it with salt, because rubbing it with salt will diminish the bleeding, will produce uh, contraction of the tissue, and then the bleeding is gone. Some yogis, I've met yoga texts where they say you use a little bit of ashes from some trees. It's, a, it's trees which contain tannin. I've seen that when I learned chiropractic in the folk medicine, that in the Middle East, they were doing some surgical barehanded interventions in the throat, and to stop the bleeding afterwards, they would use the ashes of the oak tree. Anybody who knows uh, biochemistry knows, and pharmacology, vegetal pharmacology knows that the oak tree, which is used for many medical things, contains tannin, which is a scarring chemical. It's something which stops the bleeding and so on. So, to make the long story short, the yogis have described different protocols that slowly, slowly, because you've got six months ahead of you, it's not something which you do now. You do it in six months. And slowly, slowly you pinch that frenum or you have your best friend pinch it for you and you stretch the tongue and the final result of this will be that your tongue will get longer and more free. If you already have a big tongue, unusually long, and if your tongue is also not very anchored to the bottom of the mouth, you can actually do Kechari Mudra right now. I have seen approximately... A person in a hundred, or maybe a person in uh, 50, even more than that, I think. I think I'm a bit too demanding, too exacting. I have seen a person in 50, as I said, that they could do Kecha. Like if you try to do it tonight, one of you or two of you in this hall might be able to do it. Like your tongue already can get to some point. Maybe it's not quite long enough. Maybe it's not quite free enough. This practice of cutting yourself has been criticized by some people of yoga as being too aggressive, like yoga with bloodshed. You know, it's like, it doesn't really sound very yogic that you cut yourself. I visited, I met with people in yoga who described me that they've seen this training done just by rubbing the frenulum with salt. Like every day you take salt on your fingers and you just lift, open your mouth, lift the tongue, catch the frenulum with your salty fingers and rub it. Rub it, rub it, rub it, rub it, rub it, rub it. And if the salt is gone, take some more salt and rub it, rub it, rub it for a few minutes. And they claim that if you do this, the frenulum dissolves. It simply wears out. You are wearing it out, but there will be no cutting. I know many yogis who would love this one better. They would say maybe it takes longer time, 
but I'm not going to get blood in my mouth. I'm not cutting anything. On the contrary, I have a good friend that some of you know. And this friend of mine, being a very impetuous person, he simply decided to do surgically. They simply said, why should I bother cutting one millimeter every day when I have one of my pupils and friends who is a surgical, who is a dental surgeon? Like a dental surgeon can cut my frenum with anesthesia in just one day. I won't feel anything and then it's done. And he actually did. He went to his pupil and friend, the surgical, the dental surgeon, and he got it cut in one five-minute session. He got a bit of anesthesia, and that was it. When I spoke with him, he said that actually now he regretted it because it seems that in the process he touched some nerve pertaining to the tongue, and he had lost sensitivity in the tongue. Although the frenulum doesn't supposed to have nerves, Nevertheless, he said that he lost sensitivity on a patch of, like he couldn't feel the taste of food on one little area of his tongue <coughs> in the tip because this cutting may have been a little bit too aggressive. That's why I'm telling you all these stories to make you comfortable with the idea that some people have gone there, tried, some people thought that nothing is too much for trying. I, for example, I myself as a person, have been conditioned by one of my early teachers in yoga with the idea that the Kechari Mudra was too extreme for him to practice and he thought there was great danger in it and then he kind of conditioned me of not going there and not doing it. And I being an obedient student, I said if my teacher says so, I'm staying there. Later in my life when I met with the great yogi Direndra Brahmachari, and I asked for his instruction in this. <coughs> of course, when he spoke about Kechari Mudra, I told him about my reservation about it. And Direnda Brahmachari was completely against my reservation. And he said, it's a stupid teacher who put in your mind this limitation. Because he said, if it's written in the Shastras, if it's written in the traditional texts, it's written because it can be practiced. It has been tested for a thousand years. And we know it's practiced. So... You are silly if you are afraid to do a technique which has been tested by a thousand years of yoga. And you should do it. Well, I was at a time in my life where I did not have the right circumstances for doing it. So I personally, I'm talking to you about Kechari Mudra. And there are some of the students in the school who have done it and obtained results with it. But I personally have not done it. So therefore, not everybody in yoga gets to do this one. This is a technique which for our practitioners in the Kundalini Yoga program is optional. It's they can discuss it with a teacher and they can see if they want to go there or if they are prepared for it. 26. It's a quite a few shlokas about this particular mudra which is an extreme and peculiar technique. 26. By practicing this daily, what this? By milking the tongue and cutting the frenulum. By practicing this daily, the tongue becomes longer. When it can reach, and here the next word is missing. It's in between the lines. Like the, when the yogis talk about f f later, how you perform it, you see what they mean. But when they say it here quickly, when Garanda says it here quickly, it completely scares and confuses people. 
because he gives a measure. He says, what's good enough? The tongue becomes longer. When it can reach the space between the eyebrows, that's the space between the eyebrows, then kechari can be accomplished. Most of you, if you try to stretch out and up your tongue to the maximum extension, even by pulling it, you will probably not reach to get your tongue higher than the tip of your nose. Many people can't even reach the tips of their noses with the tongue, especially if they have this kind of nose which goes up, and if the tongue is a bit short. So to reach your tongue in between the eyebrows is a hell of an increase of the tongue. You know, it means increasing the tongue with many, many centimeters. And then many people would say, gosh, if you make it reach the middle of the eyebrows, will you be able to hold it in your mouth in normal repose? Like, won't it become such a gigantic tongue that you will not be able to talk properly and it will be like you have a snake in your mouth all the time or something like. And then maybe the yogis didn't care about that because they didn't have a job and a family and a number of friends, you know. But if I do this and become like the elephant man, you know, it's like, it's like I've screwed myself for life because I won't find any surgeon who is prepared to cut off a part of my tongue afterwards, you know. So it's like some, for some people it sounds extreme. The explanation of this extreme thing is that uh, he doesn't mean the space between the eyebrows outside. He means a space in between the eyebrows inside, which is in the hollow of the head behind the nostrils. I don't know how well you are acquainted with the anatomy of the head, but if you'll go online or in an anatomy atlas, and if you'll see a cross section of the head, a lateral section of the head, you are going to see that behind the soft palate, we have, where the pharynx is, you have the openings of the nostrils. And there where the openings of the nostrils are, there is behind them a cavity. There is a hollow where there is a symphoid, the symphoid sinus and cavities. And then there is the Turkish saddle, which leads to the pituitary gland. There is a very weird anatomy inside your head. And that thing is corresponding to about the height of Ajna Chakra or actually Manas Chakra between the eyebrows, only that it's deep inside your head. And that's what Geranda talks about. That the measure is that you have to be able to get your tongue behind the uvula and up behind your nostrils until it reaches that space in your head. Which, by the way... I know people who are able to do this without lengthening their tongue. So we are talking about a longer tongue, but not a pathologically abnormal long tongue. We are talking about a tongue within some reasonable limits on the longer side. My Indian guru, when he taught me about Kechari Mudra, not Dhirenda Brahmachari, but uh, my Sannyasa guru, he showed me that the way he was taught about the measure of the tongue was that he should bring the tip of his tongue to the nose. If you can touch with your tongue your own nose, then your tongue is long enough. Again, if your nose is like this, or if you have one of these beak-like, eagle beak-like long noses, it will make a huge difference because one can reach the tongue, the nose, with way more difficulty than the other. And that's why uh, take it with a pinch of salt. In yoga, many of these things are orientative. 
they are not expressed scientifically to the millimeter and so on. You have to understand them in a rationalized way. But Geranda gives to his disciple Chanda Kapali a measure. He says if you do this daily your tongue will get longer. Little by little, a tenth of a millimeter every day, but in a hundred days you still got something. And when it can reach the inner space between the eyebrows, I added the word inner, when it can reach the inner space between the eyebrows, then Kechari can be accomplished. And then he describes it. All this was preparation for it. Now he describes what's happening. He says then, so when you have reached that level, turn the tongue up and backwards, like curl it back, and push it behind the palate until it reaches the holes of the nostrils and the cavity of the skull. Some translations, I've consulted about five, six translations comparatively to see how they translate. They just translate the holes of the nostrils. But actually the text in Sanskrit uses the word kapala kuhara. The, there is a hollow in the skull. There is a cavity in the skull, which is not the nostrils. So it basically says, and this is done even with the fingers, like some people in the beginning, if your tongue is big enough, then you curl it and then you don't have the muscles for it, you don't have the synchronization. Then you help yourself with the fingers, you just with your fingers push the curl, the upper part of the tongue, you push it back until it kind of goes behind the uvula. And then when it's behind the uvula, your tongue is like a S shape, like a loop in front, Half of it is in front and back, and then it curls up. So it goes behind your nostrils. It goes something like this. So it's like this, like this, and like this. Yeah. So it, you feel the nostrils with it, and then you feel that you can prop it even further up if it's long enough. Fix the gaze between the eyebrows. So this is frontal trataka. So by this he tells us, now you are working on Ajna Chakra. Now things start happening which pertain to Ajna Chakra. This mudra is called Kechari. Most people will say, why on earth would you like? It's interesting that the human anatomy, at least for some people and for some with a bit of training, allows this. You can do it. Usually mother nature is minimalistic. Like there is no function which is too much or too little. Everything is dimension and what was not necessary, it disappeared in evolution. Why is this necessary? Like why can the human being actually with a bit of effort, why can the human being do such a weird thing as that? Why did nature leave this little window there this loophole, why is this, po is it just an accident and the lack of foresight of mother nature? Or is it actually <coughs> a sort of an exceptional loophole, especially for exceptional accomplishments? That's what the yogis believe and you will see why. And first he goes to describe some advantages. He says, by this practice, if you put your tongue there, and of course you'll have to keep it for a while and in the beginning it hurts. You are not used, not hurting terribly. But it's like a muscle 
and the position which you never exerted, and it's very unnatural in the beginning. But if you do it every day, it becomes second nature in three years. By this practice, there is no loss of consciousness. And they use the word murcha, which means fainting. And it's uh, interesting because loss of consciousness is one of the things which the yogis despise most. Like you die. If you die and lose your consciousness, you cannot do the art of dying. The art of dying is possible only if you die aware, if you die consciously. So stay with me. If you die, stay with me till the last moment when your breath stops and even beyond it a little bit. Stay with me. Be aware. You don't need to fall asleep. You don't need to black out. This loss of consciousness is something people try to do yoga nidra or a simple yoga relaxation. They fall asleep during the relaxation. People try to do astral projection. The first thing which happens is that they faint and they lose consciousness. They fall asleep. This falling asleep is an obstacle in the spiritual development. And basically here they say it is kechari mudra, this tongue thing, which will give you immunity to loss of consciousness. Like it gives you something inside you which makes you not faint so easily not black out so easily. Many people, what if somebody sandbags you? or some, Yeah, of course, you will faint. I don't think it goes as far as that. But it's simply, it's a very interesting notice because in yoga, there is a negativity about loss of consciousness and fainting at inappropriate moments. And therefore, this consciousness thing is considered to be a spiritual benefit. So it says, by kechari, there is no more loss of consciousness, nor hunger, thirst, or laziness. Hunger and thirst are the basic ways in which we get our vitality, except breathing. So if the hunger and thirst are diminished, it means this must activate some things. Soma chakra, Vishuddha chakra, something. It must activate something which feeds the human, ener- the human being with cosmic energy. It supplements a great amount of your food and drink so that you don't feel the need for it, but you don't die or get thin or you faint or you... It's not meant for depleting you. It's like, of course, you don't feel hunger and thirst and yet you are okay. Or laziness. Laziness is a tamasic thing. It means the energy is stagnant in the low chakras. So it also shows that when you do this, it sublimes the sexual and the vital energy very quickly. This Geranda Samhita, Geranda is a bit tame. He doesn't mention this. But when you are going to read about Kechari Mudra in the Shiva Samhita, which is a bit of a wilder tantric yogic text, Shiva Samhita goes to the edge of it and simply says, if you do Kechari Mudra, even if the most sensual woman in the world sits on the lingam of the yogi, he will not ejaculate. Like basically Shiva Samhita says, Kechari Mudra will create such an incredible sublimation of energy that even super intense sexual and emotional stimulation won't have, won't, will be controllable. Like you can sublime tremendously much. That's why some yogis take this Kechari Mudra as a thing related to sexual stimulation 
to sexual sublimation as well. Here, Geranda being a bit more tame and not so much on the wild sexual part, he simply says it eliminates laziness. It eliminates loss of consciousness, hunger and thirst, laziness. Which means it makes you more in high spirits. You are not so inert. You become lighter and more ready to do different things. So this is one strange series of effects. And then he says, disease, old age, and death, the three troubles of Buddha, the poisons of life, the big boogeyman's, disease, old age, and death are overcome. Again, to which extent? How much? I don't know what's happening if any one of you goes into a cave and starts practicing eight hours of Kechari Mudra per day. Maybe you will become immortal, actually. There are legends in yoga which say it happens. I haven't done it for eight hours per day. I don't know anybody who did it eight hours per day. Therefore, it remains at the level of a legendary statement. To what extent it actually works, I am an ex-engineer, and I like things down to earth and precise. If something can be demonstrated concretely, I love to see it, and I want things to be clear and not phantasmagoric, crazy statements. It's the same here. Kechari Mudra has one of the most legendary reputations in yoga, also because it's such an unusual and risque type of practice. If the yogis have exaggerated out of enthusiasm, that may be. But the practice is definitely out there in one of the wild places. So by this practice, no loss of consciousness, hunger, thirst, laziness, and also disease, old age, and death are overcome, and the divine body is acquired. The Sanskrit words are devadeha, the body of gods, the body of devas, and it's never explained if by this it means beautiful harmony, like an excellent metabolism, or if by this is meant something else, such as the diamond body or the rainbow body or other things. Sometimes you see that in some people this is a psychological thing. Like it is known that some people are photogenic or not photogenic. You encounter sometimes people who look normal or handsome and when you take photos of them, nine photos out of ten of them look like shit. Like the, 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 there are people who simply say, I never look good in photos. I don't know what the heck is happening. And then there are people who are photogenic. Their photos look like cinema magazines, you know, like star uh, portfolios or something like this. Therefore, it is known but not clearly explicitated by alternative sciences that the way you look the way you look in a photo, the way you look to other people in public, it depends very much on the energy, on the chakras, on the state of mind, and this governs charisma and other things. This is debated a lot in Tantra and in Yoga, because many people realize, so it's not really the way you look, it's some sort of aura, it's some sort of charisma which you have around you, and which makes people not capable to see the physiological details of your body, but some sort of general wrapping 
which makes you shine in a way which kind of hypnotizes, which kind of uh, takes, takes one's eyes, so to speak. It deludes one's eyes. It's the generator of illusion. I could give you concrete examples, but it's already uh, getting late, and I want to finish the Kechari Mudra at least for tonight, and that's why uh, leave it to that. Study it, and you are going to see. Even famous stars from cinema and other charismatic persons who are famed for their beauty, like some of the beautiful actresses of Hollywood and so on, when you take a simple photo and analyze it, you find out that the legs don't good, look good, that the knees are too bony, that the I don't know what is not really looking good. So if you start analyzing, the person is not really beautiful. You can take other photos of other persons, maybe even some of your colleagues from high school, who taken segment by segment, they are way more beautiful than that person. And yet that person was worshipped for being super sexy, amazing, and so on. And then you realize this person must have had a charismatic presence. People were somehow hypnotized in the presence of this person, and it's something else. So that's why when the yogis say that you are going to get a divine body, yogis know much better these things, and therefore they might not refer to the fact that the shape of your shoulders, like how can affect the shape of your arms and shoulders, the fact that you are swallowing your own tongue and pushing it up behind your nostrils. What effect will it have, you know, there can be a woman who says, I don't like my legs. I think they are too big and too muscular. Do you think that if you stick your tongue inside your skull, you are going to actually get your legs more beautifully shaped? Maybe if you do Garudasana, maybe, but not by swallowing your tongue, no? Because there's no direct influence there. <clears throat> but this can mean that you can generate some mysterious something which makes that everybody who looks at you mysteriously overlooks if there is any defect on your shape of the legs and mysteriously thinks it doesn't really matter. The person is really, really beautiful. So a divine body can mean the illusion of a divine body. It can mean the hypnotic, charismatic presence as if you had a divine body because ultimately it's a divine body because other people perceive it as being divine. But a divine body can also mean a body endowed with divine characteristics such as paranormal abilities and other things. So it's the same double entendre twilight language. And he continues on big horses here. He continues, there are four more shlokas and we'll conclude. He continues saying, fire does not burn the body. Wind does not dry it up. Water does not wet it and snakes will not bite it. This is a very weird shloka because it echoes a shloka from the Bhagavad Gita. If you didn't read Bhagavad Gita, you don't know what I'm talking about, but many thousands of years before of Geranda, Krishna himself, he speaks, he explains to Arjuna the nature of the spirit, of Atman, of the Supreme Self. And he says, Arjuna, this spirit is not the same thing with the body. When your body dies, your spirit doesn't die. If your body gets sick, your spirit doesn't get sick. The spirit is an immortal thing. And therefore, he, and then he uses exactly this sequence of three. He says, the Atman, 
is not big, is not small, is not here, is not there, is not up, is not down, is not good, is not bad. And then he continues by saying, fire doesn't burn it, water doesn't drench it, wind doesn't dry it up, and the sword doesn't cut it. Because Arjuna was about to do some holy war with his sword, and Arjuna needed to address it concretely. Like he basically, Krishna is trying to tell to Arjuna, when you are going to kill Bhishma, or when you are going to kill Yudhishthira, you are not going to kill his spirit. Which is a sort of a bullshit excuse, but we don't have the time to go there, because like this, you can say, well, then you can kill anybody, because you are not killing their spirit, you are killing their body. But killing the body is also a no-no. No, well, not for Krishna. Krishna was riding on his big horses in that discourse. And here, mysteriously, Geranda copies him, which shows, of course, that Geranda had lectured the Bhagavad Gita. And then he does a very weird thing. Krishna says, your spirit, fire doesn't burn it, wind doesn't dry it up, water doesn't drench it. And Geranda says, if you do Kechari Mudra, fire doesn't burn the body, not the spirit, the body. The wind doesn't dry it up, the water doesn't wet it. And instead of the sword doesn't cut it, the snakes will not bite it. That's such a strange turn of things. Because basically Geranda says your body becomes a godly body. It, your body becomes paranormal. You can walk in fire, you can go walk on water, you can like the elements of nature, but that will be more like pointing towards a rainbow body, towards a diamond body. And he says, by Kechari Mudra it comes. And the snakes will not bite it. That's a very, very sweet and weird infiltration from the Bible. It's only in the Bible, in the Old Testament and New Testament, where some firebrand prophets of the Judaic religion and later saints of the Christian religion were doing this. And they said, oh, if you have faith in God, the fires won't, uh, the snakes won't. And today you've probably seen in 10 Hollywood movies until now, images where some crazy firebrand preachers of USA, they say hallelujah, brother, and they go there, they pitch themselves into some trance. And then one of the features is that they enter among rattlesnakes and cobras and they take them in the hands and they dance. And mysteriously the snakes seem to be intimidated or not provoked and they get away with it. And that's one of the most controversial practices because it doesn't work for some people. There are plenty of people who tried to be firebrand Christians and they got bitten by snakes and some even died because of some allergic reaction or simply because of the poison. So it's funny that here Geranda takes three things from Bhagavad Gita and then he adds one thing which is more Christian. Since it's written in the late 18th century, it is most probable that Geranda and his kind of people have heard Christian preachers passing by India and trying to spread the Christian religion. And one of their things was this firebrand thing that the people that believe in the Holy Spirit and are blessed by the Holy Spirit shall deal with snakes and da-da-da and all that. And he says the snakes will not bite it. Of course, the snakes, poisonous ones, are a real threat in India and a daily problem for people who live in the jungle. 
And there are many other yoga practices. If you remember when I read the practice of Mayurasana, the peacock pose, there exactly the same thing came. That Mayurasana makes that even if you are stung by a scorpion or bitten by a cobra, you won't die. It makes a huge Manipura, which will make you resist even poisonous bites or stings. And it's the same thing. Here, Geranda says that the snakes will not even bite it. Which, of course, we know that nature has some mysterious laws. You lie down in bed with another person, and the other person gets about 50 mosquito bites all over their ass and thighs, and you don't get any. How do the mosquitoes know to avoid you and to go to the other person? Is there any decree in the invisible worlds that you are forbidden to be bitten? It may refer to a smell of the body, to an enzyme, to a hormone, to something. It may refer to an energy, which is I've seen places where <clears throat> these natural pests were absent, not because of a chemical, but because of an energy. Like there was nothing chemical that could justify it. And that's why it's a statement. It's a big statement, which is magic. You do Kechari Mudra, and your body gets in such a place that the elements of nature can't really afflict it, and even the snakes will not bite you. Why? We don't understand why. Or maybe he means they'll bite you, and you will be immune to their poison anyway, so the biting won't really matter. 30. The body becomes beautiful, and again, the same statement. Is it really going to change the shape of your body? Or is it something about how your body is perceived? Is it a radiance in your aura which generates that? The body becomes beautiful either way. And samadhi is sure to arise. Again, a big solid statement. Samadhi is sure to arise. Like basically, Geranda says, not only paranormal accomplishments, but actually this Kechari Mudra eventually takes you in samadhi. But then it's good. It's A to Z. That's why Shivananda says there is a branch of yoga which consists just in Kechari Mudra. You do Kechari Mudra from morning till evening and it will take you to Samadhi. Period. You don't need to do anything else. So, there it is. The tongue touching the various openings. It's very vague. I've checked a lot of translations and there are a lot of versions of this formulation. The tongue touching the various openings tastes various juices. This is the secret. He tells a great secret because he says there exists something physiological. Even because of the tongue touches something, and he doesn't know, he can't explain because he is not an anatomist. Because the tongue is touching various places, your tongue will physically, maybe it's not physical, maybe it's an impression. But your tongue physically has the feeling that you are tasting some juices. Of course, if you want to be nasty, you're going to say, what juices? If I put my tongue behind my nostrils, I'm going to taste my own snot. Right? Because you can just make like, and then you've got snot in your, and you can taste it, and you can swallow it. You know, it's like, that sounds a bit disgusting and gross or something. But of course, Geranda is going deeper. It's not only about the nasal secretions, mucus, is talking about something way more serious than that. Here resides one of the great secrets which explains the mysterious Kechari Mudra. 
because it appears that the yogis have, and anybody shakes their head, they say, how the heck did they discover that? How obsessed with yoga practice and the body do you have to be to get an insight of this? Like, you must do 50 years of yoga and must be clairvoyant and everything, so you get such a weird idea, because basically, to make the long story short because it's late, the, long, the short story is this. When you prop the tongue there, you teach a reflex point, which is the opening of the most internal of the sinuses. There exist four groups of sinuses, frontal and others, nasal and so on. And there exists a sinus, which is right behind your head. And sometimes if you draw very cold air for a long time, Sometimes you feel a reaction somewhere there from eating too much ice cream or ice. Something starts hurting and aching somewhere inside your head. There is a sinus inside your head. Like you have a hollow and in the back upper point of that hollow, there is a sinus, which means a little orifice and then an opening, a secret opening like a hollow in your skull bones. It's a hollow right in the middle of your head. And that hollow... When you go to the opposite side, in the front it has a little opening. And when you go to the opposite side, the back wall of it, it touches the so-called Turkish saddle, which is a special formation where the pituitary gland is, where the hypophyse gland is. And the hypophyse gland is the gland which coordinates all the human metabolism. It's where the growth hormone comes from. When your hypophyse gives a signal, then you stop producing insulin, thyroid hormone, adrenaline, testosterone, folliculin. It is the, when you get old, it's because your hypophyse says now you get old. Gray hair, wrinkling of the skin, it's all coming from the hypophyse. That's why the Ayurvedic doctors call the hypophyse and the epiphyse, they call them the glands of destiny. Like your karma is coming from those. And the yogis understand this energetically, also thinking that the destiny has a lot to do with Ajna Chakra, with this area. But basically here the yogis have hit a physiological bonanza because they discovered that if you place your tongue in the right place, your hypophyse will start exudating, like sweating. It will start seeping through the bone, the backbone of the of this sinus, and then this sinus will start getting in it microscopic amounts of these hormones, and this substance will eventually, through the opening, come on your tongue. So basically you are going to feel like your skull sweats from inside. It produces some juices. And the experience goes so far that in the last two shlokas, they even describe the sequence. They say in 31 and 32, with the various juices produced every day, so it's a daily practice, you have to continue because then you create a reaction. And it calls the attention on the fact that these juices change every day. We explain in the advanced teachings of yoga why they change every day. It's related to the phases of the moon like the Kalas of the menstrual cycle of women. It's a long story advanced, too advanced for a satsang, which is an open uh, information. It's out there, it's public domain. 
That's why I don't intend to go further, and it's of no use anyway, because you'll have first to get the initiation, the practical things. But it says, with the various juices produced every day, so it's a hint there, one experiences various tastes. Like, you don't know what it is, but at least the taste is something which you can still feel. First, a salty, alkaline taste. Some people, instead of alkaline, they describe by it by the word brackish. Like, it's a sort of a weird, salty, mixed taste. So, first, a salty, brackish taste. Then, bitter then astringent. These are very classical tastes in Ayurveda. You know, when something is bitter, when something is astringent, it means something. So first salty alkaline or salty brackish, then bitter, then astringent. Then like butter, ghee. Ghee tastes slightly different from butter. So it's one day you feel like you've got butter on your tongue, and the next day you feel like you've got ghee on your tongue. Milk, curd, Buttermilk, some people instead of buttermilk, they say whey. So in the family there, milk curd buttermilk. Honey, grape juice, and finally of nectar. He doesn't use the classical word soma or amrita, which is used all over Ayurveda and yoga. He uses a very sweet little word, which I don't even remember in Sanskrit. And that word is meaning nectar. And it's an analogy, because in yoga, in spirituality, basically nectar was one of the big things. Nectar, soma or amrita, is the nectar of immortality or ambrosia, which the Greek gods were drinking. The gods got a tricky thing, because up on Mount Olympus, from time to time, they drink ambrosia or nectar. And that nectar keeps them immortal. It keeps them young. That's why Zeus never gets old because he drinks ambrosia. In the physical body, the thing which keeps you young or not is the growth hormone and other products of the hypophys gland. So these guys say if you put your tongue there, you start tapping the fountain of youth. You cheat your own hypophys gland to produce additional hormones which will produce a sort of a state of eternal youth. You will not age or at least you will modify it dramatically. That's why it's not completely absurd that some people in yoga speak about lengthening life, defeating decay and death. The only question is if that is 100% true, or if it is true only to a certain extent, like some yogis said that they lived 300 years. Well, it would be a great thing to extend life from 80 years to 300 years, although that's not immortality. But still, it's a considerable extension of the lifespan. That's why we are sailing here in very troubled waters, because there is no scientific research on these things, and we wonder when there will be, or if it's possible to have any actual scientific research on these things. And that's why we have the tradition. The tradition is the only thing which guides us. The tradition, the gurus, and then your own practice and experience. So in the last two shlokas, Gyaranda shows that things are dead clear. Like you put your tongue inside and you will feel some saltish taste and somebody will say, yeah, that's the snot in your nose. But then after a few days it becomes bitter, it becomes astringent. That one day it becomes like butter or buttermilk or one day it becomes like grape juice. Like where is that? That's not the snot in your nose anymore. 
Where is it coming from? What is it? What effect does it have on you when your body starts producing some exceptional things? And eventually, nectar, soma or amrita, the nectar of immortality. Therefore, the statements are, it's funny that in this technique, he goes down to the level of physiological things. He simply says here, there is something which is palpable. You know, you touch it almost. It's something which is not stories. Of course, the limit of it is that very, very few people would ever actually perform the Kechari Mudra. <clears throat> Even in the school here, we have a limited number of people who chose to go there. And it's a practice which requires a commitment. Even if you don't cut yourself, even if you use salt, even if you use, or if you are gifted already with a long, loose tongue and so on, still it will take some practice to perfect these things until you find the right points, the right touching points, and so on and so on. The story is longer. I don't intend to clarify more right now. But this was everything which Geranda had to say about the extreme, mysterious Kechari Mudra, which for many people has been a landmark. Even in Kriya Yoga or some other forms of yoga, some people claim that it's not complete without doing Kechari Mudra. So for many people, Kechari Mudra is like the secret, the real secret. Incidentally, here in Agama, we demonstrate that you can do plenty of yoga without Kechari Mudra. Kechari Mudra is a non sine qua non. It's not an indispensable practice. But definitely the yogic texts who describe it, such as Shiva Samhita, Geranda Samhita, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, they all of them describe it as an exceptionally potent, exceptional yoga technique, which is true. It's a bit extreme. You have to be a bit crazy to push it there. But it's, a, it's an interesting, definitely, yoga technique. We are going to stop here for tonight. I wish I could have finished the mudras, just a few of them. We'll continue with them in the next satsang. As you can see by now, that this chapter of the mudras is definitely more magic. It's, it's already getting back to Kundalini, and it's already turning us back more to the mystical, spiritual things. As you will see, as you go further in the chapters of Geranda Samhita, which are actually only a few left, it's not, it doesn't have so many chapters, then we, you'll see that it goes more and more on the spiritual part of practice. With this, we have finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you, and thank you for joining this satsang. In the future satsangs in the next week, we are going to continue, hopefully finishing in the next one, the chapter on mudras. With this, we have finished. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.